1: grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
0: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network here in New York City talking with Jill Abramson, former executive editor of the New York Times. Now she's got a great new book called Merchants of Truth, the Business of News and the Fight for Facts. Welcome, Jill. Thank you. This is a great book. If you listen to this podcast as you're doing right now, you will like this book because this is about technology, media, their collision, what that means for journalism. Um, You spend the book focused on four companies in particular, New York Times, which you used to run, Washington Post, Vice, Mm -hmm. and BuzzFeed. Why did you pick those four companies to focus on?
1: I picked those four because they were very much ascendant at the point I began researching the book and hanging out. This is Uh,
0: four-ish, five-ish years ago? Yeah,
1: Yeah. this is, you know, right at the end of 2014, beginning of 15. When you had time on your hands? I didn't, actually. Yeah. (laughs) But, no, it's after I I was— Removed from my job at The Times in May of 2014, and I immediately uh, signed up to do a few things, including teaching uh, journalism classes at Harvard, which is my alma mater. And so—but it isn't really a question of whether I had time on my hands, but at the point I was gone from The Times, I was left with this, like, just— insatiable curiosity about the new digital news players. And, you know, Arthur Greg Salzberger had just written the innovation report. And, you know, my sense was that it dripped with a fair amount of envy for uh, both BuzzFeed and Vice, especially because of they were ahead of the Times in an area called audience this was an, This was an
0: internal memo created by A.G. Salzberg, who now is the publisher of the Times, explaining how the Times should do better in the new digital landscape and how to not get huff by the HuffPo, et cetera.
1: That's a great way to phrase that,
0: yeah. In the book, you describe that memo as an epic fail for you personally. <laughs> I was
1: felt it, that it was. Why, why, why was that? Because as managing editor, which I was at The Times for eight years, my biggest project was uniting the times's newsroom so that there wasn't something we called the web <laughs> newsroom right. and then the newsroom newsroom which which was a pre- standard
0: sort of cleavage for a long time in, in yeah, publications yeah
1: but you know it created duplication and my sense was that we were rapidly becoming a digital first news organization and Combining uh, the the two newsrooms was difficult. You know, there was still a lot of kind of cultural mm-hmm. opposition or even snobbery that some of the non-web newsroom people had, and you know, I it was a gargantuan piece of work that I felt like wasn't recognized at all. So you felt like you'd done
0: all this work to bring the Times into the modern era. I thought
1: I was the—you know, that was my signature. I was going to be the editor that brought the New York Times. You were the person who
0: ran the Times, who got digital, and said, you don't get digital, actually. We're way behind. It's kind of the nature of digital, right? Like you, you keep up and you're on top of it and then right. you're behind.
1: There's always something new.
0: Um, I want to talk to you about all the publications that you, you spent time Should I time tell with? you about
1: why The yeah, yeah, Times yeah, and The Post? Please. I mean, The Times, because from the inside, you know, I had the best ringside seat ever to see how dislocating and exciting uh, going digital was and— during my tenure, the Times was in the deepest financial trouble it had been in in decades. And, you know, the adjustment was hard. And I thought, you know, the—and str- I thought that the Post was doing well at that point, which was the beginning of 2015. You know, Bezos had taken it over. just up, yeah. I thought their apps were— Really great to use, and their website was very um, had a great user experience. So, I was interested in in them because of the changeover in ownership, for one, uh, like. Like The Times, it was one of the great traditional news companies owned by a great newspaper family, the Grams, and that had stopped. And I just thought it would be really interesting to take two so-called old media and two new media and— I was copying David Halberstam's structure for a book he wrote in 1979 or was published in 79 called The Powers That Be which you know was a book that chronicled the news media at the height of power. Uh, and, and
0: you embed yourself, right? Well, you were already embedded in time, so you didn't need to embed yourself. There. Right. But you got a lot of access from, particularly BuzzFeed. It looks like you spent a lot of right. time there, maybe a little less so at, at Vice and the Post, but you were that, that, deep that, in. That there. would
1: be true. Um, Although Vice, you know, let me interview yeah. anybody I request. Uh,
0: at that time, they were pretty open. They were, they were what's it, better than open. They were uh, exuberant.
1: They were I- exuberant, yes. Uh, they had just started Viceland, the cable channel. Yep. And I was always scratching my head about that as because in my book, I'm really go deep on the business models that all of these places had. And I didn't really see where you know running programming on a, a cable channel that had been history too was. was gonna really push, Vice into a new sphere. Yeah. We, it
0: seemed- we asked them about it, and they basically said, we're getting paid. Right. And then, then, then some more bluster. And I think, actually, not only has it not worked out, that, that has been devastating because you can sort of spin a story talking about digital stuff for quite some time. But if you—and someone like Jeff Bukas or Rupert Murdoch might buy into it. But if you see a 0.0 for Land, and you know what that means in Nielsen terms, it's, it's very hard to make that case.
1: Exactly.
0: Let me ask you about BuzzFeed in particular, because there's news as we're recording this. Sad news. Um, BuzzFeed announced layoffs. There's a thousand total layoffs across the media landscape this week. It'll be a week old by the time you're getting it. Today, in particular, uh, we had the first real cuts in BuzzFeed News. Uh, BuzzFeed News had been spared uh, downsizing right, prior they cuts. Lost
1: their national security team. Yeah.
0: So you're you're deep in BuzzFeed. You're watching them very closely for several years. Did you see these cuts coming? <laughs>
1: The glimmer of them certainly towards the end of my reporting. Because at that point, Jonah Peretti, the founder, had moved to LA and, you know, BuzzFeed was operating what was, to my eyes, because I spent a week there, a mini Paramount Pictures, but for, you know, video. And so they were making the— Acres cor- of warehouses the, the, with, with the, film the, studios. Exactly. And these, you know, young stars, some of whom had been just web producers uh, for BuzzFeed, you know, being recognized on the street by young people. I mean, Eugene um, of Try Guys is like a rock star yeah. to, a, a, you know, a young cohort. So they had were already shifting sort of where their financial emphasis was and making, you know, you and I probably both hate all of the industry cliches, but they were making the pivot to video. Yeah.
0: Well, they, yeah, they were going hard into video. The news operation- So that was a had, glimmer
1: yeah. that like old model that was so successful in the beginning maybe wasn't. And then- the news was hived off as a, a separate
0: right. thing. That was the way to sort of solve the tension between Ben Smith and, say, Frank, and we've talked to, I think, right. most of them at this point about that. And basically, the news operation um, was really big, um, cost a lot of money, won a lot of awards, did great, some great journalism, um, didn't make any money, lost money.
1: Lost money, for sure.
0: But for a long time, Jonah Peretti said, I like it. I like it. I, I believe Peter, in it. Peter, I
1: called him seriously by the week until— my galley couldn't be changed anymore. Like, are you sure your commitment to yeah. news is real and will outlast the publication of my
0: book? And by the way, I'm sure if he was uh, in the room today, he'd say my commitment to news is it's, real.
1: Yeah, I know. He would.
0: But it has but, to get smaller. The Times has had layoffs in, in, yeah, in their And he, department.
1: you know, in this year is facing like what, you know, for a while it looked like winter is coming. Uh, and now winter is clearly here for digital news operations. It's kind
0: of, uh, kind of chilly in this room. Wow. Well, a digital news operation. We're okay. I the know, but are you, on. you
1: like BuzzFeed, got that. You know, it was a while ago now, but that big you know, investment from Comcast. That money doesn't stay in the uh,
0: bank forever. Yeah, for sure. Especially if you spend it quickly. I did want to ask you about sort of reporting on a book like this where stuff is moving. I guess it's the nature of any book, but when you're reporting on news operations and the thesis of your book is these things are all in flux and it's an interesting time. How do you try to I mean this is a little processy, but how do you sort of try to give yourself as much room as possible to allow for major news at BuzzFeed that you want to squeeze into the book? Are you you're saying you were calling up Jonah until?
1: Yeah, until the last
0: minute. Like, so literally like, I guess, a couple weeks ago, months like, ago?
1: Maybe two months yeah. ago.
0: So was was is there a temptation to go, oh, man, i got to add a new chapter on this or that?
1: Not chapters, but information. Yeah. And, uh, and I did.
0: Uh, and how do you balance that with going, I want this to be valuable to someone reading it five years from now or two years from now?
1: I think you make it valuable and immutable by focusing on the core important things that will always be really interesting. And to me, that's always history and the story of people. You know, I I don't want to brag on my book, but I think, you know, we're talking about BuzzFeed and and Vice, you know, just the characters and the foundation stories of those two companies and then their impact on the news. They've yeah. both had a lot of impact. So and, I know a
0: lot of their history. I report on this stuff. I know these guys. I've talked to them. They've been on the podcast, et cetera. There was still great stuff there that I hadn't yeah. seen before. It's, it's yeah, And they're, they're fascinating people. It,
1: they're colorful characters, and there's important stuff in the book, and there's juicy stuff yeah. in the book.
0: A lot of it's like, about uh, you, too. So
1: I was not really that worried. I would say, in some ways, my biggest worry in terms of staying current with very important material was Facebook.
0: Right, and I was reading the Facebook chapter again last night, and you've got stuff there that goes up through the summer, up through the past Cambridge Analytica, so.
1: But, right, that all I had to go back and and add and felt, you know, the story of the power of the algorithm and Facebook becoming what I think is the world's biggest publisher, that that wasn't enough, that, like, you had to include all of the, you know, I already was on to the Russian fake news sites, but these breaches of people, users' confidentiality and, you know, hiring a bare-knuckles oppo firm Mm -hmm. to, you know, go up against Facebook critics, I mean, that all... It's really important.
0: I was going to ask you to do armchair Times editor uh, later in the, but I'll ask you now. Uh, I think the Times has done mostly really great reporting on Facebook. Um, they've obviously turned the lens on them this year. Facebook—it's been reported, and I've talked to them. They're sort of confused about why this is happening. I have
1: talked to them too. Yeah. So, and
0: and and you 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 get that sense of confusion from them and defensiveness.
1: I get. I wouldn't say confusion. I think that there are executives and people who work there who think the Times is out to get
0: them.
1: That's what I heard. So that's defensiveness.
0: Do you think they're right that the Times is out to get them? I'm giving you a big fat softball here, but I want to hear your answer.
1: Right. My answer is no because, you know, I helped run a lot of big running stories about— companies and countries and you know what what you do it's just the old Watergate rule. When you got a great story you stay on it and put your follow teeth in and you keep going. And if you keep discovering fascinating and important information for you know your readers and audience to know, you've got to publish. So You know, there have been a lot of stories and more stories about Facebook, certainly in their tech coverage than anyone, you know, deep, deep investigations. But that's how a big story should go.
0: Do you think if you were running The Times, you would have got to Facebook sooner? Or was this something that until the election didn't really crystallize for you yourself as like, oh, this is a giant story?
1: No, it. I mean, it had already crystallized for me that it was a giant story when I was still at the Times. And I can remember, I wish I remembered the year, but having a hiring conversation with Jenna Worth, um, and she Star, was— Star Times reporter. Yeah, just a great, great podcaster, yeah. a great person. Uh, but she really, you know, lit a fire under me. And, you know, we grew the, the technology group. It's much bigger now. Yeah. But it's funny, you know, at the times, and this may be too in the weeds, but technology was covered as just an eddy and sidelight of business. And what technology is, is covering life.
0: You sound like you work at Recode now.
1: And, you know, it just, so naturally their coverage of tech Grew, And I think at some point, they're not going to even call the reporters who focus on it the tech group.
0: <laughs> yeah. But no, there was sort of a technology. It was a subset of business. It was almost a regional story. I mean, if you go way back, I can remember, you know, covering reading stories in the Times when they would say, well, Intel has a new chip, and it's this much faster than the old chip, and that would be a story. Right. Um, and, you know— well,
1: you know, Facebook becoming a big deal. When you know the the start of that was when they launched the newsfeed, right. and that happened to be about the same time as the iPhone uh, went on sale. And for my book's narrative spine, that's really where it. Begins because it was also close to the financial crisis, which compounded all of the, you know, endemic financial problems right. that newspapers were dealing. Media with. Media companies that were the, rickety
0: now are much right. much, much weaker. Now you've got a phone in your hand that can replace exactly. a lot. of Exactly, and Buzzfeed
1: was built on Facebook's back, and Vice. In my book, I, I write a lot about how Vice was built on YouTube's right. back. So it's sort of 2017 back to 2007.
0: I knew we were going to cover a lot of ground. And look, we are. <sighs> Let's take a quick break, perhaps from a sponsor, perhaps not from a sponsor. It's going to be a break. We'll be right back. And we're back with Jill Abramson, who's been admonished by Golda. Yes, I have. My
1: rings are audible.
0: So the, I apologize. for this be podcast from here on out. We were talking off-air before we got started about the book tour and how it started earlier than you thought it would um, in response basically to, to criticism the book had gotten before it even showed up on anyone's shelves. I think there's two spines of criticism, to use your metaphor. One is um, mostly on Twitter saying you got some facts wrong. Mm-hmm. I'll let you litigate that with your, with your Twitter people. Um, and the other is Jill Abramson doesn't like the internet. She doesn't like digital media. She's sneering at this stuff. And that sort of informs some of the original Twitter criticism, I think, too. There's a New Republic interview uh, interview story where he says some of the sections where you're talking about uh, BuzzFeed and Vice read like Abramson is speaking from a place of ill-informed bitterness over Prince's loss of supremacy. Jill, are you bitter?
1: No, and, you know, I am an acolyte of Clay Shirky's. And in his fantastic article about newspapers uh, dying, his conclusion was you just have to stop Mourning and focus on there's a human need for great storytelling and reliable information. And wherever it's distributed, it's great, and just stop it. And I, you know, I've believed that since. Probably before he wrote that article, which was a long, long time ago. So and to be clear, it's you're not e- just
0: you're not just talking about whether the Times is delivered to your doorstep or to an app. You're talking about whether it comes from some person on the internet you never heard of versus an upstart versus the Times. If they're good and fact checked and verified, you're you're happy with it.
1: Totally,
0: obviously, you are.
1: And uh, you've read the book. I really don't think it has that. I, I was. I, I will say
0: I got the book and I went right to, right to this stuff. Uh, the, the initial complaint was about someone who worked at Vice News uh, who, was, who was upset with the way you portrayed her. And when I read the Twitter stuff, I thought, oh, this is Jill Abramson sneering at the people at, at Vice. But you read the chapter and you're not. You're kind of admiring at how cool they are. Um, you definitely, and also
1: admiring of their journalism. Yeah.
0: And, wow. and you, have, you have real criticisms of Shane Smith and, and, and some of the misogyny there. But you're taking Vice seriously. That's why you're writing about it. And then BuzzFeed in particular. I think, I mean, you have real admiration uh, for a lot of the journalism they're doing for Ben Smith. Um, you can just sort of—comes off the page. And I was a little—I so I just figured, oh, there's going to be a dichotomy where you've got the old guys, who Jill Abramson's on the side of, and here's the young sort of uh, callow upstarts, and how's it going to work out? But you, you take them very seriously on the No,
1: and to me, what I loved about the narrative spine of this story is that— You know, at first, BuzzFeed and Vice are really, you know, doing content that isn't real news. They're doing
0: doing content with a capital C, not news.
1: Yeah, and Jonah Peretti uh, described his audience as as the bored at work network, which I love. And at the point I started reporting, both Vice and BuzzFeed had jumped into news. And I thought Vice's weekly show on HBO was really sort of addictive and and informative. And, you know, BuzzFeed's just Buzzfeed site I looked at every every morning, and they always had kind of an interesting— hard news story that I hadn't seen anywhere else. And I recommended, in terms of sneering, I recommended, you know, people to both companies who were hired while I was working on the book because I thought they were fascinating. And it looked like fun and interesting to be in their newsrooms. I,
0: I think it would be easy to discount both those organizations for a while because when, even when Vice did journalism, it was a lot of stunt journalism. It was sending Dennis Rodman to North Korea. And I for a long time thought that what BuzzFeed was doing was the HuffPost playbook, which is you— get a lot of volume. Um, you don't publish a lot of stuff that's that's great. And then because you want to be taken more seriously, you hire a handful of people from the Times or places like that. But you don't really intend to create a news organization. You intend to sort of show them to advertisers and to sort of get a little credibility. But clearly, especially in BuzzFeed's case, they spent a lot of money building up a very big staff there.
1: And Ben Smith, the editor, handpicked People, very experienced people yep. like Miram Elder, uh, who does internet, the editor for international news, like from serious right. places, and they stuck around. Uh, and they didn't just show up, right? And go, or oh, look like uh, look at Rosie Gray. She had left to go to the Atlantic, and now she's come yeah. back.
0: One theme you talk about a lot in the book, whether you're talking about uh, the, the new companies or, or the Post and the Times, is this conflict or tension between the edit side and the business side. This is inherent, and I think in any media company, any journalism company, everyone I worked at, um, it was an issue for you when you worked there at the Times. Um, and if I'm reading you right, you think the business edit uh, divide or has gotten too small at the Times. You think that problem has gotten worse um, over time.
1: Mean, since I left. Since you left, yeah. You know, it's it, it is hard for me to say. I mean, I am first of all like so happy that the Times is in such better financial health than it was. When I was there.
0: And that would be the argument, uh, right? Like every time something when the business side sort of encroaches on a traditional, it's like this is to help save the
1: paper. I mean, Ke- Keller's—Bill Keller was my predecessor as executive editor and a fantastic boss, a great journalist. But he used to always say, it comes down to keeping the Baghdad Bureau open. Right. Uh, and, you know, it's hard— to say absolutely no when you get down to that. But the thing that worried me the most was that the journalists in the newsroom were seen by the CEO as being responsible for the development and creation of new products which are revenue-producing, and, you know, none of the journalists at the Times were ever involved in, you know, revenue-producing things before, and, you know, I was disturbed. The, I guess the first clash was when—and and this was even before Mark Thompson arrived—but Arthur Salzberger Jr., the publisher and his cousin Michael Golden, who was a senior executive, decided that the head of video was gonna be a dual rapport mm-hmm. to the business side and to me. And before this new blended position was created, the you know, head of video was a very distinguished documentary news maker who I thought was doing great work but like the business side was really down on her and being very forceful about we need we need to make a big change and you know that that was new them you know I was spending 3 quarters of my time as executive editor in business meetings and definitely senior executives on the business side were weighing in on personnel and other things that just had not happened during Bill Keller's period. And, you know, one of his predecessors, who I'm still close to, is Joe Lelyveld, And they just drilled into me that the independence of the newsroom was the most critical thing. So I was very you know, sensitive and on guard about this. And I write in the book, you know, maybe too much because it's not like there have been, you know, any even close to scandals Right, and you point out they're doing this
0: great aggressive Facebook reporting and they're also through their brand studio, creating news-like articles about Facebook. It's very clear but, which which is which.
1: And we're very clear, as is the book, about why that is. It's because, you know, Facebook and other social platforms completely disaggregated the news. So, you know, you weren't going to the the time Oh no I meant I meant, a... I meant
0: they're creating ads for Facebook that oh, yeah, run on yeah, the yeah, times sorry. and saying clearly yeah. look clearly their the revenue is not being affected by the aggressive reporting the aggressive reporting isn't being affected by the fact that they sell ads
1: Yeah and I mean that duality has existed you know since Adolf Fox's time <laughs> Do you think it's
0: reasonable to ask leaving aside like the, the top executives but on the ground reporters to be thinking about how their, the value of their work and how it's received and whether their stuff is well-read or if we're moving now towards a subscription model, whether they should be thinking about whether people want to pay for their, the work they're doing and if not, should they be creating something else or do you think that's someone else's job and they should be going out and focus solely on creating news?
1: Solely creating news involves the distribution of your stories mm-hmm. in the world we live in. And that's in. a new idea. So it sure is. It's a, But it's part of what I was going to say when you wisely re- redirected me was the disaggregation of news where stories appear in people's feeds from many different sources. Uh, you know, people don't necessarily notice, like, that it's the Times story or CNN story. And so the journalists, uh, the Times has always had star journalists, uh, but they were always mainly of the New York Times, The New York Times was. And in the book, I have an anecdote where I tell Nate Silver's lawyer that he said to me, I represent the prettiest girl at the party. And I looked at him and I said in a very sarcastic voice, oh no, sir. The New York Times is always the prettiest girl. Is this, is this when
0: Nate was deciding whether or not he was going to yes. save the Times? Yeah.
1: But my point is just, you know, journalists have become individual brands. Right. And
0: that, that pendulum sort of swings back and forth. But in your book, you say the the clear signal within the Times in 2018, 2019 is if you want to succeed, if you want to have job security, you do need to be a star reporter of some sort. You do need to make sort of clicky, popular stuff.
1: Or articles about Donald
0: Trump. Nice segue. I wanted to ask you about Trump. You spent a bunch of time talking about it. Um, Obviously, the Times has done great Trump coverage. You are also critical of an overly negative tone in the Times in particular. I mean, I guess um, you said too much of their stuff is, is negative. Here's a quote from you. Given its mostly liberal audience, there was an implicit financial reward for the Times in running lots of Trump stories, almost all of them negative. And now that I'm reading it for the third time, I finally figured out what you meant. You meant that the stories about Trump are negative. Yeah. Not that well, the reasons are negative.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: But you then go on to say, look, it, it bumped traffic. It helped sell subscriptions, but it undermines trust in the paper. That's and that's that's where I'm stuck.
1: Why? You don't think it does?
0: Well, if the stories are negative It's not trust
1: in the paper. It's trust in the news media broadly. Both, Yeah. Uh, right? No.
0: Um, Tone of coverage and headlines had become markedly harsher and more adversarial, in part to appeal to a growing anti-Trump readership. Right, but that's not trust. But the the pushback, I mean, look, we're reporting the facts. This is, and I'm going to editorialize, but I'm free to do it. It's my podcast, against a a real crisis here. Um, um, This is a real problem, and we should tell the truth, and the truth in almost all cases will be negative if people respond to that. Because they support us, great. If they respond to that because they hate Trump, right. less great because they'll go away over time. I'm just,
1: Peter, not sure that the excerpt from the book that you read is criticism. I'm just—it's true. Trump has been a gold mine for— television ratings, and for newspapers. So that's all I'm saying. That is true. But did you go on
0: to talk about this Pew study and and people have a general distrust for the media, and and the suggestion I get from reading the book is that if we tone that back a bit, that would help the media regain trust. And it seems like we're well beyond that
1: now. No, I'm not talking about toning it down, but I am talking about maybe better modulation. Like often I'll open, let's say, the Washington Post app, and one of their apps, The Post Most, actually interchanges news stories and opinion as they aggregate. And seriously, on not few days, uh, it, I, I have to scroll past like eight or nine things that aren't Trump, 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 Trump. And the other day, again, I— So I,
0: the issue that those are— Trump stories that are negative—they're feeding an audience you that could wants negative stories, or they are fine. Okay, them. just less. Find room to write about other stuff. But the truth
1: is that they all get clicked on, so there is an incentive. I—I uh, I, I just think I'm not. That isn't a criticism. It just is. Sort of. It's Michael Kinsley's rule that the biggest crime is to just say
0: what is true. A gaff. He de- defined a gaff, oh, right? right? The definitions. Right. G- I've just fact checked you live on the podcast. Yeah. All well, right. it like was that. a long time ago. That's, I think that's. The, you have
1: a younger memory. It might be,
0: <laughs> I kind of want to quit while I'm ahead, but in, instead we're gonna take a quick break. Looking at Golda. We'll be right back. I'm back with Jill Abramson. We could talk for a long time about your book, but <laughs> you, everyone should go read it. It's great. What surprised you about the Washington Post when you spent time writing about that company?
1: The thing that surprised me immediately when I started going there to interview journalists was that it seemed so happy
0: because— You expected them to be complaining about Bezos and the new digital— No, not
1: necessarily, but it was such a contrast. Uh, You know, I spent 22 years of my career in Washington, in the Washington Bureau of the Wall Street Journal, and then I was Washington Bureau Chief of the Times, and— During all of that time, I mean, they were so reducing their staff. And it was just depression city over there. And, you know, people whose criticism I respect a lot, like Jim Fallows, were saying in what they wrote that the quality Mm -hmm. of the newspaper was suffering. And so it was, you know, Misery Alley, and then, you know, what I found on day one was Happy Valley. (laughs) And And that just, you know, was surprising. It's not like I expected them to be sour grapes about Jeff Bezos, but just to have such a quick— Turn around. I figured there'd was. be a
0: honeymoon period where you've got money and someone who says they want to invest, and they've been, you know, losing assets and losing people for a long time. And then after a while, the billionaire, and in this case, the tech billionaire, would go, "What am I doing here with this company?" And actually, I don't want coverage of this. And or the other version would be, "I'm a technologist. I'm going to fix the company with my own special software or management mandate." And there's bits of that, but uh, you haven't—you certainly haven't heard complaining about it. Do you, do you have a no, sense of— No, the
1: only criticism um, that is common, and it's only in journalism circles, is that they don't cover Amazon yeah. as aggressively as others. And what do they
0: say to that when you bring that up?
1: They say, we have covered Amazon and— point to the links to stories, which are good, but pretty infrequent.
0: I think it's an undercover company generally. The Times did one big takeout on the work culture there. Jody Cantor's great
1: piece. And
0: and I think it is a hard company to report on. Geographically, it's far away. Um, I think they're certainly going to get more scrutiny over time, though.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I have regrets about... The people who said no to interviews for my book. Uh Bezos, I tried very hard yeah. to get to. And in the end, he said no. He's, After no. months and months and months of I know he was considering it.
0: He is difficult to get to. Um, I don't blame him. I'm not sure the upside of it. I mean he's he's public a bit, but on, her, on his own terms.
1: I thought with the vile way that Trump has Attack what he calls in his tweets the Amazon, Washington Post, and falsely saying that they don't pay their fair share of taxes. Yeah. Uh, I thought, and the you know the enemies of the people, and the yeah. fact that the Post has the new slogan "Democracy Dies in Darkness." I thought.
0: You thought he he'd might. lean into this
1: I book. thought
0: he might lean in. Yeah. And same question for The Times, right, which is kind of a trick question because you were at The Times. A lot of what you're reporting on in there is your personal story in some cases. Was there stuff that you went back and said, all right, as a reporter, I'm now an outsider. I'm actually going to go ahead and call people, and I'm assuming you did that. I did do that. Um, what, what surprised you about that experience, or how did what you were hearing differ from your recollections?
1: I asked for there's one small part— of the book and New York Magazine excerpted that part. It's the middle New York Times chapter, which has some pages where, you know, I kind of agonized over this, but where I write in the first person about some of the troubles I had as executive editor and my firing. and. I actually did do reporting with other reporters, some of whom I didn't know whether they'd been fans of mine or not, to kind of get a reality check on how I'd been perceived. And that was hard and occasionally painful. But not awkward. I mean, anybody—I can't think—even though I say at the very beginning of the book, which is true, that the Times decided not to cooperate, uh I talked to just about everybody I want.
0: And you to. mentioned where you say then this thing happened and they then you've got an aside saying the Times said that it did not right.
1: I go by the rule, no surprises and I as an investigative reporter, I felt no one should read a story about them or that mentions them and be totally surprised. So
0: was there anything the time, where-
1: both um, the New York Times and Vice saw, you know, they knew almost everything, and actually saw a draft of what.
0: So, I wrote. but there was nothing in your reporting. Where you said, well, obviously it happened this way, and someone said, no, no, Jill, you have it all wrong, or you didn't realize this was happening offstage, well, and and. I
1: I, th- I don't want to make it too obvious who it was, but in fact checking something where I said not only, it was one of these merging of someone's job and that had been news and making Mm it business and news. I said um, that this person was as unhappy as I was because like we met in my office right after and they they were like visibly upset to me. But in talking to them, You know, more recently, what they told me is they were not really that upset, but they knew how sensitive I was about this merging. And so it was sort of (laughs) faux-upsetness.
0: All right. If you're a Times criminologist, you can go back to that chapter and check it out. You end the book talking about uh, uh, local news, or it's one of the things you talk about. The problem with local news does not get covered enough. But I think anyone who looks at it and thinks about it seriously goes, this is a real problem. And I don't have yet to hear of a good solution. Do you have a decent solution for the the, the what seem to be brutal economic realities of, of running a mid or Not small state? Not one that paper? can
1: scale. Not one that can scale. I mean, ProPublica, the Texas Tribune, Min Post, and I spent a lot quite a bit of time at Min Post. I mean, they're wonderful digital news organizations. And there are some in California. There is one in Chicago. Um, but—
0: We need a wealthy person basically when I subsidizing. Was, when
1: I was managing editor of the Times, I was behind—I uh, think it cost all of $300,000. But we were inserting—we were having Times reporters do local news in like four— places where the local paper had been degraded and tried to do, like, two pages inserted of local news to try to, you know, plug the hole. But the hole is too big. It can't be plugged. And the Times to Save Money canceled uh, that program anyway. Maybe they saw it as... Too little and ineffective.
0: I mean, we had your successor, Dean McKay, on stage at our conference a couple of years ago. I said, "What's your solution?" And he basically looked looked like you and, and shrugged and turned to the rich people in the audience and said, "I, I hope you guys can help out." Essentially, short of billionaires or sub billionaires buying their own papers or
1: great nonprofits,
0: uh, uh, it, it seems. I mean, uh, Vice and BuzzFeed are going to go through some sort of permutations, but they could certainly survive. Uh, the Times and the Post look very healthy. Journal's doing fine. I mean, are you looking at a future where five, ten years from now, like lots of papers just simply don't exist?
1: Well, you know, if trends continue as they are, and I don't see why they aren't. I mean, we lost half of all journalism, newspaper jobs, half in the past 15 years. I mean, that is incredible. And hundreds of local papers have closed. And, you know, in the book yeah, you know, one of my my big points, because I think the lowered trust in the news media, local news sources consistently rate as the most trusted because they're closest to their communities. They're known. And it is a real, real crisis Good that one. they're going away. We live, Peter, I mean, you're brilliant at covering this. Yes, we yes. live in the era of big. Where my worry is like, you know, the Washington Post has already been acquired by big. Right.
0: But and I by think. By the way, one of the reasons the Post was in trouble was because it was pursuing a local strategy. You
1: know, look at, you know, Netflix and Apple yeah. are jumping into news. It may be that we just have behemoth news companies where news is, you know, a relatively small part of the business, and that
0: worries what, me. What do you make of Google and Facebook each saying we're putting $300 million into news with a local emphasis and to push subscriptions? You just made a great face.
1: I did. I'm, you know, skeptical because I don't really think they understand journalism.
0: What they tell me when I say things like, you guys should just be taxed. You should just have a tax that gets distributed. I know like it's a never utility. Gonna happen, like a utility. Um, and they go, no. And, or, or just make it a straight subsidy. Just go ahead and cut checks to all the local papers. And they say, listen, if they have failed business models, we, can, we can't, you know. We're, we're going to help them learn how to run their businesses correctly. Um
1: But what they don't understand, even Vice and BuzzFeed, and certainly the New York Times and the Washington Post, I found in reporting my book, they have a sense of mission. And I'm not saying there's no sense of mission of doing important things to better society, you know, but—
0: I think they absolutely think, by the way, many of those folks at those companies are ideologues, um, and I think in a good way. Um, they just don't think their mission is to save journalism, which may be fair.
1: Well, journalism is fundamental to saving democracy. The First Amendment is first for a reason.
0: Can we leave on an up note? What's the most encouraging thing you found, the most surprising, encouraging thing you found in your reporting?
1: That young people— are now a lot more interested in news. They are, uh, and that's crucial. That's something I worked on at the time, like inculcating a new generation of subscribers. And I think that's gonna turn out
0: happy. I, I hope that's true. Jill, this is great. I was looking forward to this for some time. So thanks for doing it.
1: Thank you for having me, Peter.
0: And thanks for telling me I was brilliant. That was great. (laughs) Thanks to you guys for listening. You can also tell me I'm brilliant. Uh, You can leave a review saying I'm brilliant on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at PKafka, As you know, Jill, do you enjoy the Twitter?
1: Uh, I'm a lurker.
0: Okay. Don't tweet it, Jill, then. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Joel Robbie edits this show. Golda, Arthur, and Eric Johnson produce it. They are awesome. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week.